Why, hello there. It is Elise coming to you just a little bit closer to live than the rest of the episode. Uh, Unfortunately, my computer decided to eat my audio file and it's just somewhere in the depths of my hard drive and I am not smart enough to find it. So um, I just wanted to let you know and give you a little heads up that I will be editing the rest of the episode directly from my and Olivia's Zoom recording. So our audio this episode will unfortunately not be as just like completely immaculately crisp as it usually is. So I really just hope that you can bear with us and enjoy the rest of the episode. And by the way, just another extra little big fuck you to imperialism. World is burning. Welcome to World is Burning, the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. I'm Olivia. And I'm Elise. And we were just talking about our not quite (laughs) imposter syndrome, but how we feel in interesting about being two Americans making a podcast episode about a very whatever topical and very British British thing topic but I feel like as Americans we're all a little bit obsessed with the British as a whole it's like yeah in some way a result or a perpetrator of the British Empire in whatever way yeah not quite as directly as some people but you know yeah here we are so, yeah, a little Stockholm syndrome, a little like whatever. I don't know what it is, but yeah, but yeah. British culture and like the British royal family is very much a part of like American culture too, even if it's more mm-hmm. of like a spectator sport than like a way of life for us. Yeah. I guess. Um, or it's just, yeah, you, you see a lot of our issues like exacerbated in different or like playing out in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but the monarchy, which obviously I think is pretty clear what we're referring to, um, the passing yes. of the Queen of England a couple of weeks ago now, um, it's just like brought up so many interesting conversations and, you know, stuff about the history of colonial rule. Honestly, I've found that like not so much people I know, but like celebrities that I vaguely follow are much more loyal to the British monarchy than I like would have ever thought. Um, yeah. And yeah, just like. A lot of thoughts about the role of the monarchy and for those of us that are generally anti-imperialist like what does that mean now yeah 100 percent. and we were also <laughs> i was asking you if you were irish because i'm going to talk about the irish potato yes. famine yes and so um, basically yeah just going back to the fact <laughs> I, so i was like let me see i think so but and then i was like let me pull up my 23 and me because my mom got it for me for christmas one year and i was like sure whatever Again, like I said before, uh, did I sell my DNA to the government? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but haven't committed any crimes yet. So hopefully it's not a big deal. There you go. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, but yeah, I am apparently 15.4% British and Irish. I'm mostly like German. Interesting French. that it's combined. Yeah. Because I think DNA isn't like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm from England specifically. Like it, I think it's ancestry wise. There are right. bigger groups like French and German is clumped together. Um, I'm like 73.5% French and German, but like a lot of my family is from specifically Germany. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that. So it's probably more German than French, but like, that's like a group of, of like, you can tell by DNA to th- yeah. those together. Um, but yeah, County Cork, greater London, UK <laughs> is likely. Um, yeah. So there's a whole list of likely Irish counties that I'm from 
maybe so yeah that's well maybe fun. i'll i'll teach you a little bit of the history about this time period and we can yeah see if you if, and if then it makes I'll tell sense you. to your family origin so like Which my probably not. family is, <laughs> yeah well who knows but i i just thought this was interesting okay uh let me just get into okay my let's story. go for it um because are you I, irish no i mean i i don't have the 23 and me like list out not because I'm opposed to it just because I haven't done it um but I do know a fair bit about my family history I have a lot of Scandinavian roots on my mom's side and then Mm -hmm. like Scandinavian farmers who emigrated to the U.S. in like the 1850s roughly or later 1800s um and then on my dad's side it's a little bit more um Scottish and English but I don't know and certainly no royalty certainly no like major political leaders or anything. Um, But I was thinking about it a lot because I grew up in Massachusetts where so many people are Irish Catholic. Mm, And by learning a lot more about this, I've learned about why that is. Um, So let me just get into it. Yes. Um, My sources for this episode were Library of Congress, the Gravel Institute, which made an amazing video about, it's called How Britain Starved Ireland. And it's it's really good. I literally watched that video and I was like, should I even do this episode? This this video is so good. Um, so I highly recommend going to watch that because it captures the story like very succinctly. Uh-huh. I also used the Gazette Opinion, UK Parliament's website with a heavy grain of salt. Yeah. Um, the book Black Potatoes by Susan Campbell Bartoletti and the Ireland's Great Hunger Museum website, huh. which had a lot of great information. National Library of Medicine and um, a little bit of a couple of other like abstracts from research that I'll put on the website. Cool. So this like the Irish potato famine was something that came up a lot on my Twitter, um, not actually from Queen Elizabeth's rule, um, but I feel like it speaks a lot to colonial power in genocide and in famine. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was sort of surprised doing this research how the monarchy actually didn't come up that much um i'm sure if i had searched harder or longer or done like the full books of research that other people have done it would come up a lot more Mm -hmm. but the way that i remember this story from history class is basically there was a bad winter there was disease black goo crops died and that the irish didn't have enough diversity in their diet to withstand the winter Mm -hmm. Um, and then as a result many who survived migrated to other parts of the world including north america i feel like the focus at least for me was very much on this like yes bad crops and then migration and again that could be because i grew up in massachusetts where there's this huge irish american population and irish catholic specifically Mm -hmm. um But I also kind of feel like my vague memory of this story is very emblematic of how people understand climate and agricultural issues today. Mm -hmm. We blame the victims for their lack of foresight. And we think, well, why are those farmers basing their entire income on a single crop? Like, isn't that dangerous? Isn't that kind of stupid? Um, Mm -hmm. But we ignore the larger forces and the power structures that are causing that to occur. Mm -hmm. So... In the mid-1800s, Ireland's ownership was largely made up of absentee landlords who used Irish land to produce crops and animal products for the English market. Uh, Most of these landlords actually lived in England, hence the absentee, Mm -hmm. and then hired poor Irish farmers to cultivate and maintain the land. Gotcha. That meant that Irish farmers didn't actually have 
control or they they didn't actually own their land or control where the harvested food went. Mm -hmm. And it also meant that the properties weren't really improved. There wasn't like a huge incentive for the landowners to do that if they were getting the same rent. Mm -hmm. So in the early 1840s, a potato disease in North America reached mainland Europe um, and then eventually spread to Ireland. The disease was a fungus that turned healthy potatoes black and could ruin entire successful harvests in storage. So in the very early years of this famine, they would harvest successful crops just fine and then put them in like a cellar in order to keep them and eat them slowly throughout the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, And apparently there were like two types of potatoes, one with thicker skins and one with whatever thinner skins. They would eat those first. And if the fungus had reached into any of those potatoes, it would very quickly spread to the rest of them because they're all just like in this huge pile in a cold cellar. Mm-hmm. So in that first year, again, the the crops themselves were successful, but then it was afterwards in storage where they just like completely went to rot. Okay. Um, and then in following seasons, that fungus, I guess, extended to like, you know, the crops that were planted um, mm-hmm. because it was coming from those potatoes. So it like was bad and then it got much worse because it's not only like the current crop but also everything from the past crop that's just like going away yeah for mainland europe the potato disease was tough and it did lead to political unrest and poverty but these countries were not nearly as dependent on the potato as ireland so -hmm. since ireland had such rich soil and a fair amount of land um, it was an ideal place for english landowners to make a buck The population was roughly divided into three classes, the wealthy landlords, the middle-income farmers, and the farm laborers. Some of the laborers were able to rent tiny, tiny plots of land, like cuts of a tiny part of land, Mm -hmm. Um, and potatoes were the most efficient, most nutrient-dense crop that they could make work in these tiny plots. Gotcha. So, obviously, because of this power structure, the lower classes were largely or completely dependent on the wealthy, faraway landlords for their food, their shelter, and their work. Poor families said they lived on potatoes and point, which I thought was interesting. It mm-hmm. like it meant that they would be at the family table eating potatoes and they would point to their family pig um, because often the poorest families would live in the same place where they had a couple of animals and then they would eventually mm-hmm. not eat those animals but sell them um, because that was the best way again, for them to make a living. So um, at the time, potatoes dominated the diet of at least two-thirds of the population. And one thing I forgot to mention is also that a lot of the poorest families had been forcibly relocated to the rockiest coast of Ireland, which was another reason that potatoes were like the only suitable crop that they could use. Interesting. Okay. So When the British Prime Minister Robert Peel started hearing about potato crop failures in Ireland, he brushed them off as evidence of typical Irish exaggeration, Um, (laughs) which I just, wow. Um, Ireland had become a part of the United Kingdom in 1801 and therefore was ruled out of the London Parliament. Um, A very small number of Irish representatives came from the wealthy Irish Protestant class and not the poor Irish Catholics. At one point in my research, I was trying to do like a quick review of um, Protestant and Catholics, the separations of those, the Church of England, which is Anglican and not like quite either. Yeah, I I don't remember that much and I can't get into that. 
but that was very largely at play in all of this too. Yeah, maybe we could do a like religion and climate episode one day. Oh my god, that yeah. seems like it would be a lot, but could be it, interesting. Yeah, it would have to like be separated up because wow. Yeah. But I mean, it, I think I, I just wanted to mention that because that is a huge amount of what's happening here too. And yeah. also, if there are any Irish people that listen to this, or even any Brits, like I am oversimplifying a certain number of things, but. You have to get the, this is the, the larger version. Yeah, this yeah. is the, the 30 minute version. Maybe. We'll see. So, as the famine got harder to ignore, Peel purchased 100,000 pounds of sweet corn in the US to transport to Cork. Um, he set up some relief organizations and initiated road building to employ Irish workers. These strategies were underfunded, insufficient, and very far from perfect. Like, mm-hmm. think about putting a bunch of hungry men, very strong men, but incredibly hungry. And putting them to work doing very heavy labor for roads to nowhere. Like people described them building piers in places that weren't on trade routes. So like huh. it just kind of it was it was works for work's sake in order to it wasn't like, like building their infrastructure to like help them out of the situation. Yeah. It was just like digging a hole, filling it back in. Yeah, combat unemployment and like again, heavy labor. So it's very difficult for a starving population. Yeah. Um It just didn't make a ton of sense, but it was something. And in 1846, Peel attempted to repeal the corn laws, which kept the price of bread artificially high. Again, this was something that was just like not totally helpful because the impoverished at that point, it had already been a year. And at that point, they can't afford any bread regardless of the price. Um, Mm. And prices had risen so high that like, I mean, it was kind of just out of the question that they would be buying bread at that point. Mm -hmm. But that also majorly pissed off the conservative party. So in June of 1846, Peel was defeated in a review of a bill that was meant to combat famine-fueled violence, and he resigned a few days later. And in his place, the, well, the conservative party of England initially had somewhat of a sympathetic response, um, but that changed when the Whigs came to power. So if you thought that things were bad with our repeal, you kind of don't know anything um, about the Whigs. So there were a handful of quietly destructive but deeply internalized beliefs in society that really came to the surface when the Whigs came to power. So first of all, the Whigs were free market capitalists, which basically meant that they believed that problems will solve themselves if the market is left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, this combined with religious beliefs from several denominations and several religions about the wrath of God led to a very laissez-faire approach to the ongoing famine. There were even Irish, like poor Irish people who thought that like this was happening to them because of wrongdoings in their past, like that this was the wrath of God. So sad. Yeah. But that kind of fed into this belief from, from all sides that like, yeah, which I mean, that's still around today. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that's very much like, right. I mean, changing anything is scary. And so, of course, changing a system that is working for you personally is like, is not, not something people are on your priority list. Yeah. Yeah. Destined to do always. Um, The English were also heavily influenced by the theories of economist Thomas Malthus. The Malthusian trap, as it was called, was essentially the idea that as food production increases and living conditions improve, the population is going to increase with it. But since the population could grow exponentially and then food production was linear, as he believed, 
Um, overpopulation would lead to a severe drop in living conditions and eventually to a mass die-off. The Malthusian model accounted for these die-offs as a way to restore balance to the system. So as the population in that that idea got too high, there would be these die-offs from famine or war, and that would kind of restore the living conditions for the restored population, as they would say. Of course, there are a lot of racist overpopulation myths that exist today surrounding climate change and just like yep. destabilization well, that are very, later. yeah, <laughs> very ready. rooted. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, yeah. I'm not surprised, but yeah, you know, um, it's, it's very awesome. rooted in these Malthusian beliefs. And as fun as it is to say Malthusian, it is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Like, like the who's or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, something that they would believe but no it is not not as fun as that um but it was very pervasive like he had written i think like thomas malthus actually died in like the 1830s or something like that and he had written these principles of population and stuff in the late 1700s and early 1800s so it was very like entrenched in society but it was something that was mentioned by pretty much every source that i went to um, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Yeah, which is also it's just like so fucked up to like the fact that like and like well, we could talk about it more and maybe you'll talk about it. But like that the fact that like this hundred years is like where Britain was like doing the most colonization mm-hmm. and growing the biggest. And like if they were going off of that principle, they're like, we're going to go take all the resources and then mm-hmm. everyone else can die. Yeah. And that's the plan. Cool. Like mm-hmm. what? Like it just like that. It's right there. It's not like oh, we didn't realize. It's like no, that's the plan. Like that's the going theory. Yeah. No. Okay. So I didn't like really put any of this into it, but I was telling you about this just before. Yeah. So Queen Victoria, so the Victorian era, very influential time. Um, yeah. She became the queen at age eighteen in 1837. So really, just okay. a couple years before all of this happens. Um, and her reign continued until her death in 1901. Um, I went on a little, like, I was trying to finish my story right before this. And I, of course, that's always when I find these interesting things. Yeah. There's this whole just like Wikipedia page for this thing called the bedchamber crisis. Okay. Um, which this is a side trail, but I'll, it's pretty quick. So I'll tell you. Okay. Um, she was buds with the Whig prime minister that was right before Robert Peel. And there was a little controversy with, like, disliking Peel when he came to power that was largely because, okay, so she was buds with with this wig, Mm -hmm. W-H-I-G, and he, like, had given her a bunch of, not given, but, like, had helped her employ a bunch of ladies in waiting that basically, whatever, helped her get dressed and helped her around the palace. I don't know what they do, but, like, essentially, like, maids, nurses, such um they were all wigs and when robert peel was about to come to power he was like hey isn't it kind of weird that like all your ladies and waitings are like the wives and family members of these important wig politicians like couldn't you choose Mm -hmm. some people that are a little bit more neutral and she was like no these ladies are like my best friends like i'm not gonna fire them just because you don't you like see you can't see past their like family's political beliefs and stuff yeah um and so apparently that controversy, the bedchamber crisis, is what, like, not the only thing, but part of what led her to dislike Robert Peel. Gotcha. Um, so I didn't look too much into, like, 
how she felt about the wigs after um after Robert Peel was done but yeah. I'm assuming she was like sympathetic to them and quite happy not just yeah. because of the bedchamber thing but I love uh, I don't love like the monarchy but yeah. I love a petty queen like that I can yeah. I yeah. can get with no, um but another thing that was said about her was that like when Queen Victoria died the British empire had been expanded so much that the sun never set on the British empire mm-hmm. essentially that there were so many places around the world again that the sun never set there mm-hmm. and like that's what she was known for was this expansion mm-hmm. um so yeah we'll talk about that later but like that's kind of what she was up to while this was happening in essentially her empire mm-hmm. um so going back to these like kind of internalized beliefs that were coming to the surface as the wigs were coming to power the English also had a lot of very unforgiving beliefs about the character of the Irish. They thought of them as lesser, as lazy, difficult, um, kind of that they got themselves into this problem. They also thought that the Irish were promiscuous and had too many children. Mm. Uh, this can go more into like religion if you want mm. to. But um, if you think of the Irish as promiscuous and too many kids, and you believe in overpopulation and that a famine is going to even things out, you can see where that logic goes. And then also, if you think of um, women going into prostitution in order to feed their families, mm-hmm. again, can add fuel to this promiscuity um, belief. Mm-hmm. I thought of it kind of as like the welfare queen myth, essentially, but like 1840 style, yeah. this idea of these people that are like lazy and just profiting off of the system profiting off of the like system like the goodwill charity of the english without recognizing how they've been removed from power and removed from their own agency as Mm -hmm. like irish peasants also of the limited food that did get sent to ireland a portion of it went to feeding the animals that would make their way back to england so through the entirety of the famine Ireland was actively exporting food to other countries, especially cash crops like cows, sheep, pigs, and grain. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to the Irish peasant just pointing to their pig, like they uh, essentially after a couple of years of this, probably most of those families wouldn't have even been able to afford like a basic farm animal. But mm-hmm. the irony of like exporting food when you have a crisis where you are is just wild. Yeah. Um, The food that went to Irish people was also riddled with moralistic tests. So food goes to people with no land. So then impoverished farmers would sell their land to the English in order to qualify for this food, Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, gives more land to these English landowners that often own like massive portions of land. Mm -hmm. The new Whig prime minister, Lord John Russell, said this in 1847. He said, It must be thoroughly understood that we cannot feed the people. We can at best keep down prices where there is no regular market and prevent established dealers from raising prices much beyond the fair price with ordinary profits, which to me is kind of just absolving themselves of like what the, yeah, what they should be able to do. In 1847, an extended poor law was passed in Britain. Um, This shifted the responsibility of feeding and maintaining poor houses onto the Irish landowners. So, or the landowners in Ireland. Um, Mm. According to an account written by a descendant of an Irish laborer, this law made eviction of tenant farmers an efficient way for the landowner to lower his tax um, because the poor rate would be lowered. 
Um, so between 1847 and 1851, the eviction rate rose nearly 1,000%. Um, the famine generally lasted from 1845 to 1850. Within those five years, a million Irish people died, and roughly another half a million moved to North America and others elsewhere. In the 1840s, the Irish made up nearly half of the immigrants to the United States. Mm. Um, with these combined losses of death and emigration, Ireland's population fell by roughly 25%. Wow. So for some reason, that's where I decided to end this story. Um, I told you I ended on kind of a downer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think it's really interesting just to think about, like, I don't know, manufactured crises and, like, when, I don't know, solutions are, like, so difficult right. to find, yeah. even if they seems like they're right there. Um and I feel like it's very similar to things that we see happening today. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's my story. And like the moral thing of like being poor versus mm -hmm. like being wealthy is mm -hmm. I feel like definitely a thing, especially when like a lot of like massive wealth comes from being immoral. Mm -hmm. And she's like, but I deserve it. Mm -hmm. I'm a good person. Um, right. Or that, yeah, that those things aren't going to happen to you. And in many cases, mm -hmm. they aren't going to happen to you. But it's because of these, like, structures that yeah. make it happen to other people. Yeah. And they're so old and ingrained. Which yeah. Is. But uh, on that note, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess, should I get into my story? Yes. Go for which, it. Which uh, I'm going to call it King Charles, Climate King or King of Climate Change. Um <laughs> So I love uh, that. We should always have individual st uh, story <laughs> titles. titles. <laughs> I love that. Um, so my sources are Forbes, Wired, Washington Post, The Guardian, The Royal Family website um, for not very much. So it's not like with a grain of salt. It's just like <laughs> for a list of countries. Um, yeah. Outlook India, Time, The New Yorker, ABC News, Morningstar, Oxfam. A lot of these are for like tiny little facts that I was just like, wait, I need a number on this. Mm -hmm. Um inside climate news, the UK government website, uh, and just like a little bit of Wikipedia to tie it all together with like some dates and stuff because it's all compiled into one place. So basically, I don't think we specifically talked about this at the beginning of this, but obviously Queen died. That's if you miss that, I envy. Honestly, your. props to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like, can I be you? Because wow. So part of the reason that we kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit was because there are so many important things that are happening right mm -hmm. now. And like all the news coverage is about the queen passing, which mm -hmm. maybe it's a little counterintuitive that I'm going to be talking about like things that are going to happen because the queen passed, right. but acknowledging everything around it. And like, I get why so much news coverage is going to her passing. She was super famous. A lot of people really loved her. She was queen for so long, so she's been present through a lot of things and just mm -hmm. been very visible in the political landscape and around famous people and whatever. So, like, whatever, rest in peace. But because she died, her son Charles was crowned king, and now there are whispers of him being the climate king. And while I don't think... <laughs> We're just going to get it out of the way. I don't think like King Charles III <laughs> is going to be like the climate revolutionary that will lead <laughs> us all to like a new way of life. 
I do think that there's reason to believe that having him as king could be a step in the right direction when it comes to Britain and the climate. So <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're, you're gonna have to convince me on that one. I'll tell you right now. Yeah. Again, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I'm like again, I don't think like King Charles is again like the climate revolutionary that will like mm-hmm. lead the rebellion and like end fossil fuels and mm-hmm. whatever. But like again, a little toe in the right direction. Right. Um. So basically, as prince, Charles was as basically as outspoken as a royal could be about the environment, considering that royals are supposed to be politically neutral. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has talked about climate change as early as the 1970s, which like I think people thought he was kind of quirky for. But he's been talking about it for a really long time, which is which is cool to see someone like it's not just like, oh, this is a trendy topic. Like, no, Mm -hmm. he's been talking about this for over 50 years. Yeah. Um, and he has put his money where his mouth is in a lot of ways. He has turned his palace Highgrove house into an environmentally friendly place with organic gardens and uh, a wild garden to provide a sustainable habitat for birds and other wildlife. Um, he's also installed solar panels and put in a natural sewage system. So basically just making his like greening his own home, which again, that takes money. He has a fancy house. He has probably has yeah. Can you imagine how big that house is? Yeah. So like, take that but with yes. a grain of salt. Like he, but he is again putting his money where his mouth is. He's greening his own home. He did draw the line at wind turbines, which seems like a very just like rich person thing. Mm. Or everyone's like, yeah, sustainable energy. But then like, God forbid, you put wind turbines by the beach or like in the water or whatever or somewhere like, visible. Yeah. Through. Like that is just like a rich person line. Yeah, basically I do with 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 the wind turbines and just like the overall thing, it does seem a little bit like his environmentalism and interest in nature. And I think this is maybe the, a lot of like a case with a lot of classic conservationist like older generation white people mm. is it's like very about like aesthetics and yeah. like we're like I have I have solar panels on my bunker that only me and my richest three yeah. friends are gonna go to yeah so it's like it's kind of like almost a status and like oh I'm rich enough that I can go look at birds mm. for three weeks or whatever I don't know um rather than like functionally saving the earth and like mm-hmm. caring about people so that's just something to keep in mind but whatever <laughs> a little, a little going a little Wh- further. Whatever. Whatever. I don't know. Whatever. You, like again, I'm not gonna say that he he obviously cares, but like, what is the motivation of that caring? Mm-hmm. Up to you to decide. Also, uh, just for some more rich person things, he has converted his Aston Martin to which he's had for like over 50 years. It's an old car, um, to run on surplus surplus english white wine and whey from the cheese process so it runs on surplus like byproducts of wine does it smell like wine and cheese i don't know but but that's a thing and like again it's very cool and it's it is cool like to have environmental environmentalism as a hobby as a rich person i guess but like that's not an applicable solution that Mm -hmm. can be widespread like there's probably one that's probably not like 
it's probably you can get enough fuel in that way for probably like one person to run a car that they drive sometimes mm. but it's not like we can all run our cars on like wine and wine cheese, cheese. <laughs> what um but that's a thing uh that's amazing that I'm I'm gonna look that up later I want to know more <laughs> yeah and I think like Harry and Megan have borrowed the car like it's like a whole thing so maybe I'll share on socials a pictures a picture of that car because it that's just kind of interesting mm-hmm. but uh he also wrote a book called a vision of britain in which he advocates for traditional british architecture and aesthetics to be used like more in the future and mm-hmm. the vision from the book uh, resulted in a 3500 person town called poundbury uh or poundbury i don't know whatever <laughs> but a key aspect of that community was that it was built around walkability and being able to use other public transportation and bikes. Hmm. So I think that's cool. And I think it's a good example of like combining tradition and like old ways of life Mm -hmm. with like newer technology in a way that can be super green. And again, it wasn't like a huge city. It was a small, like a relatively small community so I, I thought that was interesting. Um, and Wait, that, is it a that, real town or is it's, it? I think model? it's a real, I think it's a real town. Like that's cool. It was designed. I don't, I don't, I honestly didn't dig like super deep into it, but like, they were like, it's a 3,500 person town hmm. and it was built around walkability and yeah. So that's really cool. Um, yeah. and again, like it has an element of like a traditional British way of life I guess and aesthetics Mm -hmm. and architecture but like combines it in a way that could be a really cool green solution if it was like more people were like oh like could we rejigger our town to be more like this yeah Um, which is especially if you think about the like suburbs and rural parts of the U.S. and plenty Mm -hmm. of other countries regions like how dependent they are on a car Mm -hmm. um I feel like everything that I'm saying, that's cool. I need to be like, abolish the monarchy at the same, yeah, in the yeah, same breath. No. But like, abolish the monarchy, walkable city, Poundbury sounds very cool. Yeah. And like, I don't know, like, maybe that's not something you could do everywhere. But like, could you build little developments around the idea of walkability? Yeah. Where like, maybe people still need a car, but maybe for their errands, like, everything is right there. Mm-hmm. Um, or a lot of recreation stuff is built in whatever. So yeah. I thought that was cool definitely something to look back on I guess um or like look at and be like yeah copy and paste please yeah yes so before I get into what I think is most promising about King Charles and his climate advocacy I did want to bring up his biggest climate red flag which we've talked about in your story um but it's that he's consistently advocated for limiting population growth Mm-hmm. and he's done it in speeches and he did it in his book harmony in a speech in 2010 he said when i was born in 1948 a city like lagos in nigeria had a population of just 300,000 today just over 6 years later it is home to 20 million uh he's also said uh with population increasing rapidly in mumbai cairo mexico city and cities in other developing countries around the world earth cannot sustain us all when the pressures on her bounty are so great hmm, which like interesting that you only choose developing countries yeah mm, interesting weird 
Um, so yeah, big yikes, especially the fact that he's only pointing to really like developing quote unquote nations. Yeah. Global South and global South and just like big underlying racist vibes there. So like that is a big red flag. And like, again, if we haven't (laughs) said it before on this podcast, like that overpopulation idea is very misguided because Mm -hmm. they're just 1% of people emit like twice what the poorest half of people emit and there are just 10% of people have emitted over 50% of like historic emissions since the nineties, which is when Mm -hmm. like that's most of the emissions historically. So, or yeah, I mean also, so there's that. And then there's also climate change being so indistinguishable or not indistinguishable, like unseparatable from colonialism and like, we think of colonialism not so much like someone in the abstract, but for him, it's like my great grandma, my great grandpa, like were yeah. the people that did this. So like, yes, interesting. So it's like, yeah. So again, big red flag, <laughs> probably the biggest red flag in all of his environmental advocacy. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, and I think it was. I I always am not sure about titles, but is Prince Philip? Uh, maybe Philip. Philip. Uh, <laughs> Do I he... know any of their last names? Have I looked that up several I... times before, and I can never remember? You know who I'm talking about if I yeah. say Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, uh, like I think Prince Philip uh, advocated for a single child policy or something like that in mm. England. So like, whatever. I don't know having kids or not having kids or how many kids you have should be a personal choice and we shouldn't say who or who not should be having kids right that's bad anyway so we have basically it all boils down to yeah colonialism overconsumption fossil fuels that's the problem not overpopulation and Mm -hmm. yeah but i i don't know if he's like talking about that now so hopefully maybe he's become a little more like on it with those things but like yikes anyway a couple of the most promising things about him in my opinion are that he has divested all of his money away from fossil fuels Hmm. so it and and now that he's king it wouldn't be too hard for him to like it obviously everything you do is a little bit political but like in a way that wouldn't be politically controversial to like divest all of the royal money away from fossil fuels so that's something that he could do and like probably hopefully will do mm-hmm. since he's already done it with his own money. And like, again, there's so much talk about divesting from fossil fuels. And if that's kind of a thing that becomes standard practice in wealthy mm-hmm. and influential circles, that could be a really big deal. Or if that kind of just becomes like, oh, I don't need my money in fossil fuels. I can afford to invest in right. green technology or whatever that whatever that could be a big deal. The next most promising thing, again, in my humble opinion as an American, um, <laughs> are his black spider letters. Hmm. And they're called black the black spider letters because of his handwriting, not because of anything to do with spiders or like is it his bad either. handwriting? It's not bad. It's just like scrawly and spidery, hmm. like scripty. So I don't know why. <laughs> why they were like yes these letters 
named after his handwriting are the black spider letters, <laughs> which is like it makes it seem like that's the only thing he's ever written. Yeah, um, which is not true because he has several books, but whatever. Um, but I mean, those are in type. So maybe that maybe he's never yeah. written anything else. He's only yeah. typed other things. He did have um, anyway. that whole little kerfuffle with signing whatever that royal paper was. Anyway, say go. what you're gonna say. <laughs> anyway, so he wrote these letters in 2005 or 2004 and 2005 to government ministers expressing his concern about genetic modification, global warming, farming, uh, social deprivation, and more. And these letters are a pretty big deal because the royal family is supposed to be politically neutral. So Mm. these letters directly reaching out to government ministers, that's not what royals generally do. So it could potentially be a sign that Charles will be more likely to break tradition, break conventions, and maybe be a little more outspoken. Um, He has said that, quote, my life will, of course, change as I take up my new responsibilities It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. Hmm. So will he just fall in line and do his royal duties and not ruffle any feathers? Mm -hmm. Very likely, but he has ruffled feathers in the past. So I don't know. Maybe he will push some boundaries that his mom was unwilling to. Hmm. He also said some things that I feel like if it were like if the way were cleared for him or it were made like more like if there were public support for him acting that like maybe he would Mm -hmm. act on climate change especially since there is the argument that like climate change isn't an issue that is political um, Mm -hmm. or it shouldn't be political because it's happening and like just save people that shouldn't be political So at COP26 in Glasgow, he said that climate change is an existential threat that requires the world to go on a warlike footing, which like interesting (laughs) ending to a sentence. I don't know. Yeah. Which like I wish there was a comparison to something other than war that Mm -hmm. like embodies everyone in society pitching in and making sacrifices that like global North countries could wrap their head around. But like since I think that is the only thing (laughs) I like agree. Yeah. Um, Which like going back to our talks about individual action and everything, I think that this, I, what he's saying is kind of where those individual actions could turn into collective action. Mm -hmm. Like if entire communities and countries were working together to reduce consumption and energy use as has been done in times of war in the past. Yeah. uh, could make a really really big difference yeah if you just think about like all the propaganda and like victory gardens and I don't know women not wearing like pantyhose mm-hmm. to save material and like all that those little things if every single person did that that would be a big deal and maybe Charles could model that for the for his country and for other people yeah um and maybe get people engaged that wouldn't otherwise be engaged in climate since he Mm -hmm. is such a traditional figure and like any additional people that are engaged in climate stuff that's awesome even if it's in a small way whatever Mm -hmm. like charles doesn't eat meat on certain days does lots like little things does he ride around on a private jet yes but whatever he doesn't eat meat on fridays or whatever (laughs) two days it's like yeah it's both proof that like 
collaborative individual actions will do something but also that like there is a private jet will fuck it all up or yeah or that just like there is no justice without relinquishing of power and like political systemic change Mm -hmm. um like i feel like he's so emblematic of both of those things because he like yeah like you said he doesn't doesn't in quotes have this like political influence but then he obviously does have this incredible colonial legacy that like none of us can truly understand yeah i don't know the ramifications of of something that he does like publicly divesting from fossil fuels like i don't have politicians like knocking on my door being like why do you take your thousand dollars out of the you know out of our bank whereas he's gonna get much more criticism and like a very keen eye to everything that he does yes which which again is good and i could really publicize it and i i honestly didn't even write this down but like he really can't be that much of a political figure or like or he is like traditionally not supposed to say anything political but Mm -hmm. like he will host people he will like have people over and like important famous people important political people and like i think probably convention wise he could like promote his ideas a little bit again yeah. i'm not british like, I, wink, wink, I know nudge, there's like nudge kind of thing yeah, there's like a trillion rules mm-hmm. about how things work but like he you know will share rooms with very powerful and influential people mm-hmm. and if he can i think that was something that people admired queen elizabeth for was like very tactfully expressing her opinions in a way that went with convention but like everyone knew what she thought about something Hmm. um even like I saw something to do with like a hat she was wearing so like she's very subtly referenced that stuff so like I don't know maybe he can take a page from the book of his mom but then maybe Mm -hmm. like push a little harder (laughs) um so anyway it all kind of boils down to what can we expect what should we expect and like, what should we demand and ask for? And again, as someone who is not British, <laughs> I'm saying this because again, this is all very global too. So mm-hmm. anyway, I think it was exactly the same week that the Queen died that the UK replaced Boris Johnson with Liz Truss as Prime Minister. So lots of political monarchy shifts mm-hmm. in power happening in the last like two weeks, and. While I'm like absolutely not about to stand Boris Johnson, uh, he was an advocate for renewable energy and helped Britain towards uh, being a world leader in offshore wind power. But Liz Truss, on the other hand, is a big believer in fossil fuels. And she named Jacob Rees-Mogg as Minister for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy. And Rees-Mogg is a climate change skeptic. And he said that we should drill, quote, every last drop of oil. So (laughs) every last one. So definitely not going in the right direction there. And King Charles will have regular meetings with Truss uh, in which he's not really. And I think they're weekly. He's not really supposed to state his opinions, but he like he's not allowed to say his opinions outright. (laughs) But he can ask questions about how things are going to work. Oh so, my gosh, what? He, so yeah, so he can't be like, I think drilling every last drop of oil is a stupid fucking idea. But he can be like, I think, be like, 
burning every last drop of oil will probably lead to catastrophic climate disasters and sea level rise. And like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we live on an island. So are you absolutely sure you think this is a good idea, Liz? So, you know, he can ask the important pressing questions, mm-hmm. but he, yeah, he can't be like, that's fucking dumb. But he can be like, mm, can you explain this process to yeah. me? And like also weekly meeting. Yeah, that blows my mind. Can't, state his opinion mm-hmm. um so he just like vibes with the prime minister yeah um they just yeah smoke a bowl hang out yeah. chill <laughs> uh gossip <laughs> but but yeah so he can ask questions um and again i don't i don't know if those meetings are like public or anything so mm-hmm. like maybe he'll break convention he wrote those black spider letters not that the prime minister has to do anything based on what he says but he does have an audience with the prime yeah. minister so probably very little p- political influence, but he is, again, present and in the mix of things. And he has the window of opportunity to say what he thinks, mm-hmm. even if it's in the form of a question. I feel like you can very, very easily give your your uh, opinion in the form of a question. Yeah, I feel like we need to write him some questions now. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> if you have any questions that you want King Charles <laughs> to ask Liz We will Trust, send them to him directly. Please, we will, we will send them to him. Uh, it'll be great. Send a little email. Um, DM him. Uh, does he have a... <laughs> or our own black Instagram? spider letters. Why yeah, not? We'll write our own black spider letters. We'll handwrite them mm-hmm. and it'll be awesome. So all of that taken into account considering the new prime minister i feel like we can expect relatively little from the uk right now when it comes to climate and i was honestly going to say this at the beginning of the episode but i forgot but i feel like when we were listening through like a ton of different climate podcasts um there are so many people from the uk like making great climate content and like Mm -hmm. advocating for awesome things but in terms of the government right now I feel like we probably can't expect a whole ton of radical change, but mm-hmm. like there are so many people in the UK doing awesome things. So I expect to see great things from them. Just not yeah. like the government, not going to get my hopes up there that King Charles is going to get Liz trust to be like, hell yeah, let's, right. let's go green guys. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's like the general thing that like top down solutions, quote unquote, that don't actually relinquish any power are not mm-hmm. going to get us very far it's all bottom up and like in the uk i mean just the basic headlines that i know about like whatever restrictions on protests and yeah this like entrenchment of fossil fuel executives and mm-hmm. like sympathizers in parliament in the governmental structure like similar to what we're seeing in the u.s mm-hmm. um we're that's never going to be enough we need like bottom up organizing Mm -hmm. in order for any of this to to matter but if they can like push a little bit it it helps it's like it's better than nothing i guess yeah so that leads me to like what should we be asking of the Mm. uk and looking at king charles king charles is again i'm not sure (laughs) i'm not sure which one is grammatically correct i'm not gonna fight Uh, you on that looking into king charles's climate past I also did some digging on the British Empire, which we talked about a little bit so far. But obviously, the British are huge colonizers. But until now, honestly, I didn't look really into the extent mm. of their empire. And I knew like the like sun doesn't set thing. 
and I don't want to say I didn't think about it that much because I feel like I have thought about it that much, mm-hmm. but in like, I feel like I've siloed it. Well, into, there's also like, sorry, go ahead. I feel like I very much siloed it into like, okay, we're going to learn about like British, the British in India or like the mm-hmm. British in America or the British in Africa or like on a specific continent or a region. Mm-hmm. But like looking at it all together on a timeline is like it was like a little mind blowing. Yeah. What, what were you going to say? Oh, um, I thought it was interesting when Queen Elizabeth died that so many people were saying, oh, like, you can't blame her for colonization. Like she didn't colonize any countries, any regions while she was queen for these number of decades. And that argument just like does not hold water to me at all. Yeah. Um, but also it was a uh, I'm pretty sure that's a fact or at least like fairly close to true. It's mm-hmm. a thing that surprised me. Um, but of course, like she didn't relinquish the power that she has, like the the British yeah. Empire that currently exists, nor was she particularly helpful to the countries that have like gone away from British rule in the last 70 years. But mm-hmm. yeah, I- I'm curious to learn more too. Yeah. So basically the height of the British Empire was in 1920 after World War One. So mm. basically that entire period that you're talking about, and I, I think it's between like 1814 and 1920 is like the big British Empire boom, the biggest yeah. land grab, the biggest like expansion of the British Empire. And again, like I just think it is also wild that like they had already co- colonized America and lost that battle. Mm-hmm. Like there were other places that they like influenced in like a extremely profound way and then yeah. were past it at that point. So like their influence was even bigger than during that period. So height of the empire 1920, which a hundred years is a long time ago, but I feel like a hundred years would have been a long time if it was like, Oh, the empire ended a hundred years ago and we've had a hundred years to process it and like move on and grow and like right our wrongs. But like, mm-hmm. no, that was the height. And over the next 80 years, I think like 97 was when they like, uh, I think Hong Kong was their last like territory. But yeah, so like over the next 80 years, they slowly declined. But yeah, just like, the fact that that was the height only 100 years ago mm-hmm. is wild to me. And Queen Elizabeth was born at 1926. So basically, she was born into the height of the British Empire and grew up in that. Um, wow. And at this time, the British Empire controlled a quarter of the land on Earth and about a quarter of the population, which is just so wild to me. And again, this doesn't include places like the U.S. that they had already like colonized and lost like were gained their independence from mm-hmm. England. So again, even more people like they have influenced well, well, well over a quarter of the population and like the land on earth. And considering that, and also the fact that really the only reason to colonize is to either take land for people to live on or to take resources to mm-hmm. import back into England, as was the case with Ireland, essentially like England, <laughs> kind of owes well over a quarter of the world a lot of resources and mm-hmm. a lot of time and then like probably therapy um <laughs> like 
Oh boy. So anyway, as we face increasingly severe effects of climate change, this should be kind of at the forefront of everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, it's estimated that the British transferred $45 trillion of wealth from India to the UK by 1938. So again, how, how old was Queen Elizabeth? Queen, Queen Elizabeth was like 14. So she was not old at all. She mm-hmm. probably, she was a kid, but like this was all happening very much in her formative years which after the british occupation india split into india pakistan and bangladesh Mm. as we talked about last time pakistan has had flooding that has covered a third of the country and has displaced 33 million people so when we talk about climate reparations that's like ding 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 perfect Mm -hmm. example so much wealth was taken from pakistan and now they are suffering from climate change that was caused by industrialization which is very much led by the british mm-hmm. uh, so i think it's very like reasonable to demand that britain pay reparations there mm-hmm. and it does seem like they are contributing to flood relief and doing other things on top of that like providing scholarships to people in pakistan so they can get education and tackle big problems like climate change but you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. at that point, like, like, and again, it wasn't just from Pakistan, but like $45 trillion that could have grown over the course of almost a hundred years. Like mm-hmm. what would that wealth look like now? Yeah. Um. So and then also for like media coverage of, of Pakistan's floods, which was already severely being, lacking, especially in the global North being completely like run over by the, by the queen the dying. dying. And in, like, yeah, in the so, U.S. to Puerto Rico, yes. our colony, essentially, like um, the, having a very similar story, having yes. no power, privatization of the electrical grid from like insufficient Hurricane Maria funds that came from the U.S. Like, yeah, all of that happening at the same time. Same time. And like the queen is what is dominating the headlines. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's is really almost up. funny. It's or, almost yeah. funny. It's like sickly funny. Yeah. Um, in the darkest of comedies. Yeah. That is what would be written. And that's what happened in real life. Mm-hmm. So it just really is bad and sucks. Um, and <laughs> that's, Sorry, you can that's me, me laughing that. at like, if you were going to be like, and that's all I have. And that's all I have. Uh, but I, I did want to say that today the British Commonwealth or basically countries that consider the British throne as their monarch, which seems pretty pointless, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like around the world, like ER for the queen mm-hmm. is like on people's mailboxes or whatever. Like, yeah, I don't really get the point, but like, I guess it's just like diplomacy or whatever. But those countries are Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, uh, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Christopher, and Nevis, I think it is, Mm. and St. Lucia, and Tuvalu. And uh, I'm honestly not really sure. I I have a bright side and a dark side of whether the Commonwealth existing is, like, good, Um, which, like, I've listened to some news, and it kind of seems like the whole royal family is like, yeah, that's kind of on the way out. Like, we've accepted that, like, there's not really that much power in that in the commonwealth Mm -hmm. um and like on one hand it's a very like definite reminder of 
Britain's colonial past. But then on the other hand, there is like a stronger tie there. So like if countries need aid or like have issues with climate change or other things, like I think there's just like a stronger tie there so they can get more support. But like, (laughs) I don't know, they might ask for it anyway, even if they weren't part of Commonwealth. Right. That's tricky. So like, again, in terms of like reparations or anything like that, like is would the Commonwealth be good, especially for like islands and stuff? I don't know. Again, I'm not going <laughs> to basically no comment uh, that to anyone who's smarter than me about that can. This has all been off the record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not recording uh, <laughs> fully. <laughs> the only thing that you can quote me on is that it's bad and it sucks. Um, mm-hmm. That's the only quotable bit of this. Um, but yeah, like you said, I you you did request that I I bring Puerto Rico into this conversation, which I was like originally gonna like do research on that and like talk, mm-hmm. bring it in, but then I was like, oh boy, no, we need to talk about the British Empire. Too much happening. Black yeah. Spider letters. And- yeah, I was like, too much. But like, I do think, again, it's very like very clear. Like, there couldn't be a clearer situation when the Queen dies and like takes all the media coverage from. Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. from Pakistan and the fact that like as people living in the U.S. and as white people living in the U.S. specifically for the two of us just thinking about how I guess we've benefited from colonization mm-hmm. and what we can do and like what kind of policies can people in the U.S. advocate for in our own country that could help people that have suffered from colonization and also what policies couldn't be advocate for globally because again we're kind of all in this together we're all living on the same planet and there are like I don't know things like the UN and COP and all that jazz that like is outside of the U.S. so yeah I don't know again it's kind of bad it's very bad (laughs) um and it's just like so widespread Mm -hmm. and don't think King Charles can fix it but maybe honestly if King Charles just like blew up the monarchy and was just like, fuck it, guys, Commonwealth over. Yeah. Then I would monarchy, call him the climate king. Then he'd be the climate king. If he was just like, the monarchy ends with me, I'm going to donate the royal family like Patagonia to mm-hmm. get to make a climate organization and we're all going to re- relinquish our titles and our wealth in the taxpayer dollars that have traditionally gone to us mm-hmm. are just going to go into saving the world and saving the planet um that would be cool yeah but i don't think that's gonna happen so i'd be i would be obsessed with i was literally that, just like I, imagining that, that in my mind as you were saying yeah. and i was like that it, would be rad like imagine possible. holding him up and being like charles because yeah i would celebrate him i would celebrate yeah. the hell out of him if if he did that he did that <laughs> if he did that and again like what's stopping him mm-hmm. like tradition and whatever but like he could yeah I mean I guess like everyone would have to be on board but but okay this is a a thing like William has kind of taken over a little bit of his climate advocacy in terms of like charities and like talking and speaking and like going to different events for climate things Hmm. so like he's at least a little bit on board so I don't know yeah, something Again. I was thinking about a lot as you were speaking is like these ideas of 
reformist versus abolitionist and like Mm -hmm. the sort of lack of imagination that the royal family has because their lives have been so dictated by tradition yeah um and like I can't necessarily even fault them for that because that's like all they've ever known and they've been Um, trained like like all the rules and all the things like there's yeah like you would never do that because you're trained yeah you were a child it's yeah it's like a whole different I mean even just the small amount that we've seen from Harry and Megan slightly challenging the system like Mm -hmm. and how how much that unearths like yeah I understand that there's a lot more to it but Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's fun to dream about what would happen if Charles was like I'm over this yeah we're Patagonia-ing this bitch yeah and yeah yeah I, I'm I'm gonna quote him like that's that's what he's gonna say I'm Patagonia-ing this bitch <laughs> and it's gonna Please. be done um, <laughs> that's that's the dream yeah um, but yeah that's really the only way that he can be the climate king I think otherwise he is carrying on the like the British colonial legacy and mm-hmm. is the king of climate change sorry mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway I forgot about that yeah, that's that. But yeah, it was that was it. Very interesting to look into. Yeah, um, yeah. Damn. Well, it is no, it is interesting. Like I, I feel like we again bring up colonialism so often throughout this podcast, mm-hmm. but it's fun to not fun. It's interesting to dive into those things a little bit more because yeah, yeah you just realize so many parallels that that weren't immediately clear before, um, and also how much we can change. Like how much these things have sure these traditions have existed for centuries but there's like so much that has changed over that time period that like Mm -hmm. we have a lot more power to to implement change than yeah we might think but yeah should we go to the dump yeah let's go to the dump what have you been up to i've i've been so busy (laughs) like just i've been working so much yeah and i feel like i've had a lot of social things too just like had like a pasta dinner with people the other night um I don't know just been doing a lot been recording some uh bottle episode podcasts hell yeah um, I had a lot of family in town I don't know if that was happened I think that was like maybe when we recorded the last episode I don't know mm-hmm. but yeah it's just been really busy and crazy and I've been trying to like rest I feel finally like better pretty much from my concussion Mm. which is good um but that's really good yeah what's it been like a month and a half uh just about yeah a little over yeah a little less than a month and a half but yeah so I feel good things are looking up Mm -hmm. my dog's alive Uh, that's always good you know did we talk about that last time I don't think we talked about it on the podcast I was gonna say yeah he had his dog right what no he didn't because we didn't realize what happened until it's too late to pump his stomach. So I was like, mm. I fucked up. I'm bad dog mom. But we took him to the hospital and he was on fluids for like almost three days and got around the clock care. And because what happened? He got into ibuprofen. Uh, right. And like prescription strength ibuprofen. And which like, why would he eat that? They're big chalky horse pills. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that good to you? Which I was like, if you give me problems about eating the medicine that I have to give you, we're going to have some words. Um, <laughs> but he he ate it fine. He honestly was 
excited because I gave like one was a pill that I gave him in a pill pocket. He'd get so excited. And then the other one was like a slurry. Like it was like a you had to like melt, like dissolve a pill in water. Hmm. I, I know this is incredibly interesting, but I gave I gave, would give it to him with chicken. So he would whenever I got the medicine out, he'd be like, yeah. Oh my gosh. But he'd get so <laughs> pumped. Um, and that was like the the vet was like, is he eating his food? I'm like, he's kind of picking at it, but I am giving him like at least a handful of chicken three times a day. So I think he's just like waiting for the chicken. He's like, this is the life. I should do this all the time. Yeah. yeah. So, the, <laughs> so, so yeah, he's fine, which is, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. He hasn't had any issues. Um, hopefully he doesn't have any like long-term stomach problems, but yeah, I feel like I've just had some like crazy shit go down in the last month and I'm yeah. just like, it's all you really did down it was like the concussion the dog your car broke down your prius and died we had a middle of nowhere yeah yeah you sold it sell the car so now something else (laughs) yeah so three things knock on wood hopefully we're done for Mm -hmm. the year with bad stuff um and yeah so this this month has just kind of been like catching up on things cleaning the house and it's been it's weird because we re-signed our lease for a third year wow. and um it's the longest I've lived anywhere in one building me too where I live yeah. now same and we moved at the same time August 2020 yeah so it's it's kind of weird but also like we're slowly realizing like or I've realized anyway that it's just like oh shit I would have had like three how like house deep cleans of being like why do I have this garbage under my bed Mm. um or like what is this bin of nonsense um so just been kind of like clearing things out and like organizing and like getting things re put together which has been nice after a very chaotic summer so that's kind of what I've been up to yeah no we did a similar deep clean where I live um I live with roommates in New York and the apartment that I live in like mm-hmm. you know people have moved out of different rooms at different times uh-huh. but like collectively someone has lived here for like 10 years so wow. there's a lot of stuff that like it's not mine I don't know whose it is it might be someone's sister's thing um yeah. so we've always had like a like bulk of stuff and like certain things we've like the, the fridge is always a thing um where like it's filled with these things that who knows whose medication this is or like mm-hmm. whose oregano that's like technically supposed to be refrigerated is like all of this stuff so we did a deep clean of our apartment on Wednesday and one of my roommates cleaned out the fridge and I literally we all just like keep opening it and just admiring the fridge and the freezer that actually have space that hasn't existed mm-hmm. um with that many like independent people living in a house so mm-hmm. maybe this is like yeah change of the seasons changing things up slowing down a little bit yeah. um yeah I'm very into fall that's my me favorite too. me too time, so I'm into it yeah. no I'm I'm excited and I'm also excited for like fall outfits except I live in Texas so it's still mm-hmm. 90 degrees and I'm like I want to wear layers so it <laughs> was cold here yesterday and I was like I had worked from home earlier in the week and so yesterday I went into the office and I like got myself a coffee beforehand which I never do mm-hmm. I I walked in and I was like 
it's Monday. Like I feel so fresh and clean. Like it's great. Mm -hmm. And then it took me until halfway through the day where I was like, oh, it's actually, it's Friday. And it just, it felt like a new time because the the temperature had dropped like 20 degrees overnight. That's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like yesterday I wore like jeans, a long sleeve shirt and like a corset over it. Mm. And I I was working inside, but it was like not a weather appropriate outfit which was fine. Were you sweating? Again, I was inside, but like walking in from my car. Yeah. And I was like, this is, this is not good, but I was like, I'm going to wear it anyway. Um, <laughs> Cause I was like, I just need this in my life right now. So yeah. Can't wait till it gets actually below 90 degrees. Yeah. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, I've been watching sort of on the fall subject Abbott elementary just restarted and I've been rewatching the first season too. Um, which have you watched it at all? No, it's, um, I think it's on ABC. It's on like a network. It's a network sitcom, but then it gets on Hulu the next day. Okay. So funny. Quinta Brunson, she like won a bunch of awards for recently. She's amazing. And it's just such an interesting, fun show about like the it's about like an elementary school in uh, I think Northern Philadelphia. And it's so funny. The guy from everybody hates Chris is in it. And just like, there's all the like sitcom elements. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really like fun show to watch. And I also love that they are like starting their new season at the beginning of the school year. Mm, yeah. So I think it'll run pretty much through the school year. So okay. I love it. Awesome. That's so fun. Yeah. Um. Do you have anything else? Not Should really. Yeah. I can do our, our sign off. I do it. <laughs> I always forget. Um, you can find all of our sources and everything, all the titles of our episodes on worldisburning.com. Um, we're also on social media at worldisburning with no G on Twitter and Instagram and at worldisburning with a G on TikTok. Um, we'll post some like, yeah climate photos and stuff i don't know if i have any interesting photos from mine but i'll think of something that i can post potato um yeah just just a potato (laughs) black goo um what else you can send us an email world is burning pot at gmail.com um yeah find us everywhere we're always want to talk to people get story ideas all that stuff and we'll see you in the next episode see you in the next episode